On this week's edition of New York Now, we'll cover some of the highlights from the budget framework revealed by Governor Kathy Hochul, including increasing the state's minimum wage and curbing illegal marijuana sales. We'll also bring you a story about the ongoing teacher shortage in the Empire State. I'm David Lombardo, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to New York Now. I'm David Lombardo, host of the Capitol Press Room, filling in for Dan Clark, who's on vacation. Earlier this week, Governor Kathy Hochul announced that a deal had been reached on the quote-unquote major decisions in state budget negotiations between her office and the Democratic majorities in the state legislature. The framework she laid out on Thursday night in the Capitol includes plans to increase the minimum wage, tweaks to the use of cash bail, and future restrictions on fossil fuel appliances in new homes. Oh, and did I mention the budget will likely include $229 billion in spending and does not include new taxes on wealthy New Yorkers? To help explain some of this developing story, we're joined at the Reporter Roundtable by Maysoon Khan, a Capitol reporter for the Associated Press, and John Campbell, Capitol reporter for Gothamist and WNYC Radio. So, Maysoon, I want to begin by talking about the minimum wage increase that the governor teased as part of her announcement. We began this budget process with some competing proposals, both from the governor and Democrats in the legislature. What appears to be the agreed-upon plan moving forward? So it seems like, according to the governor and what she said last night, that we're going to get um, minimum wage workers are going to get a wage increase of $1 in 2024. That's going to be 16 bucks, And incrementally, it'll increase uh, through the years until it hits $17. And that's in New York City. I know the rate differs in um, other parts of New York. Um, so that kind of seems like the deal that has been made. Um, I know State Senator Jessica Ramos, she's kind of um, pushed this other bill that would raise the wage to $21.25. And, you know, that did seem ambitious to some lawmakers, and it looks like Hochul did not take that up. But she did take up some elements of that proposal, like hiking the wage and then incremental increases and then tying it to inflation eventually. And so it seems like that's kind of the, the agreement that has been made on um, minimum wage. We'll see if there is pushback on that in coming days. Um, but, yeah. Well, yeah. Does it seem like both sides of this debate are happy or are progressives in the state legislature, like mm -hmm. Senator Ramos, the head of the Labor Committee, are they happy with this mm -hmm. deal that's been struck? So I saw a statement from um, Ms. Ramos uh, yesterday, and, you know, she applauded the governor for at least raising the wages um, for minimum wage workers in New York. But she also, again, said um, it doesn't go far enough. And that's kind of something she has been saying since the very beginning, even seeing um, Hochul's executive budget proposal just first initially just tying it to inflation. Um, she again said that didn't go far enough, and she says the same thing now. Um, but I'm not sure if there's um, enough room left to um, you know, drive more change. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have been told there are conceptual agreements, um, so who knows if there's more leeway left, but it kind of seems like that might be the consensus. Yeah, and that should be the caveat we have throughout this conversation. We're mm -hmm. speaking on Friday morning, and while there's been a quote-unquote conceptual agreement, mm -hmm. we haven't seen any bill text yet, and we don't expect to see all of the bill text mm -hmm. for a few more days. John, do you think this will end debates at the Capitol around minimum wage increases moving forward? Because, as Maysoon said, the proposal ties future increases uh, to cost of living changes. And theoretically, we don't need to debate the minimum wage anymore. It's done. It's off the table. In theory, I mean, certainly it does, you know, if somebody does not want to raise the minimum wage, whether it's a governor or a house of the legislature, they can lean back on that and say, look, it's tied to the rate of inflation and, and we're taking this out of the hands of the politician. But you can change that law at any time, right? And and if they if if 
two years down the road, Democratic lawmakers decide they want to push for a bigger minimum wage increase than what inflation calls for, then they'll be able to push for that. They'll be able to push for changes in future years. And, and you know, so the answer is no, I don't think that's the end of minimum wage as a political football in Albany. So, John, we're speaking about four weeks after the state budget was actually due, and that's in part because uh, the governor wanted to have changes to the state's, the state's use of pretrial uh, detention and was holding out on a budget agreement until she got some of her changes. What changes, if any, did she get to the use of cash bail in New York? Yeah, this all goes back to the 2019 cash bail reforms, where you know, judges can no longer set cash bail for most misdemeanors and, and nonviolent felonies. And ever since, that has been another political football in New York, particularly as the, the crime rate went up uh, during the pandemic and, and, you know, in the year after the, the first year of the pandemic. So this is something that the governor was pushing for. She's getting rid of what is called the least restrictive standard. This is for serious felony cases, serious misdemeanor cases, where judges can set bail. Uh, they're making there. There's a provision in the law that says judges have to still have to impose the least restrictive means necessary to get somebody back to court. They're going to get rid of that least restrictive means part, with the idea being that judges would get more discretion to set bail. It's clearer to judges that they'll be able to set bail in those cases. There was a lot of pushback in the legislature. Legislature, a lot of pushback from progressives. Um, from, from criminal justice reform advocates like Latrice Walker and the Assembly, who helped push for the 2019 reforms in the first place. And they're not happy with this, but the governor was insistent on it. It's the second year in a row she was insistent on making changes to the bail laws. I've seen some reporting, though, from our colleagues that this is essentially a nothing burger change, that the practical ramifications of this is that the system that we have is largely going to be in, in, kept in place. Is it your assumption that this is going to dramatically change the use of cash bail uh, moving forward? Did the governor, in waiting four-plus weeks to uh, adopt a budget, get a, a meaningful change? Or, or do you think that the use of cash bail will remain similar to what we've seen in the last couple of years? Well, there's the practical implications, but there's also the political implications. And the governor got you know, beat up, politically speaking, over the bail issue on the campaign trail. She narrowly defeated a Republican challenger, Lee Zeldin, in the election last year, and he made crime a major, major issue. So this allows the governor to say, look, we, we took those concerns seriously, and, and we take public safety seriously. And if she sells that to the public, maybe she can use that to her political advantage. And the critique about the governor on all criminal justice issues has been that she's not been a good salesperson of these issues. So I imagine if we're all sitting around this table next year, we'll be talking about the changes to uh, bail that at least Republicans were pushing. Unclear whether the governor will be looking for changes as well. And while we knew that bail was going to be part of this budget conversation all the way through, one of the things that entered the conversation late in the process was Efforts to crack down on illegal marijuana sales. Maysoon, you reported a little bit on this issue leading up to the conceptual agreement and have gotten some of the details mm -hmm. that the governor revealed uh, in her budget announcement on Thursday. What do we know about the state's mm -hmm. plan to try to crack down on the proliferation of illegal retail marijuana shops that have popped up all over New York since 2021? Mm -hmm. I think it's important to note that Hochul introduced legislation maybe weeks ago, um, and that was kind of her proposal on how to crack down mm -hmm. on these um, illicit pot shops. Um, and so in New York right now, there's only five licensed pot shops in the entire state. 
Um, and a lot of critics say, you know, they've taken awfully long to, you know, hand out licenses and get these businesses going. Um, and, you know, the critics say that that has led to these illegal, unlicensed pot shops popping up. And so if you're in places in New York City, you might see some of those. Um, and so Hochul's proposal yesterday that she kind of unveiled was giving um, certain offices and state offices the enforcement tools to kind of regulate or shut down these illegal um, pot shops. So one of them is the Office of Cannabis Management, which has been overseeing the licensing of these, um, you know, the legal pot shops. Mm -hmm. And then another is uh, tax and finance officials. And what she said is that they're now going to have the authority to um, prosecute the illegal shops on tax fraud. Um, and then that would enable them to go in, search, confiscate, and essentially shut down these shops. Um, and so that's kind of the proposal we've heard. Um, and if it's adopted, um, finally, you know, maybe next week, um, we'll see how it goes. But I think it'll be something important that reporters are going to keep an eye on um, to see how that kind of unrolls. Well, John, it seems like a no-brainer that the state or law enforcement would crack down on businesses operating I illegally. But when it comes to marijuana, the rationale for legalizing it, in part, was to reverse the negative consequences of the war on drugs and the over-prosecution of things. So has that created a bit of a tightrope that lawmakers and, and the governor have had to try to walk here as they try to figure out what to do about illegal marijuana sales? Yeah, absolutely. And especially in the state assembly, there is a lot of concern anytime you're, you're talking about increasing penalties. That is something that, that often, uh, you know, draws concern, in part because Especially when you're talking about drugs, I mean, penalties have, have disproportionately affected people of color. So there is always a concern in, the, in that chamber in particular when you are talking about cracking down on, on drugs via punitive penalties. So there is concern, but, but I think on the other hand, though, they legalized marijuana, the, the state did, and there is a concern that uh, you need a very regulated market. You need to know that the, the product that you're selling is safe and that uh, it, it comes from a legal, regulated shop. And if they can't take enforcement action against these illegal, illicit shops, then what good is it? So there, there's, there is a very, very tricky line to walk there. They seem to have an agreement on it now, but we still haven't seen the details. Mm -hmm. Well, this is really a big issue in New York City, where these shops have popped up all over the place. And your beat is primarily focused on New York City. So I want to turn to another New York City-centric issue, which is uh, funding for the MTA and increasing the availability of reliable rides there. What, if anything, do we know right now about the governor's deal with the legislature to prop up the finances of this perennially cash-strapped agency, which has its own issues about providing reliable service? A anything emerged from there that the 9 million people in New York City care about? Yeah, that's that's one that we have quite a bit of info on right now. And and there's a bailout package, essentially. The, the MTA, the New York City Public Transit System, is struggling in part because ridership plummeted during the pandemic and hasn't risen to pre-pandemic levels. So there's a whole package uh, of, of money going to the, the transit authority. The state's going to put in $365 million or so. New York City is going to be expected to put in $165 million to cover part of paratransit services. Uh, but And there's also going to be an increase, nearly doubling the payroll mobility tax. It's a, a tax on uh, employee salaries that the employers pay for large employers only in New York City. So this is pretty different from—the the basic elements are the same as what the governor proposed originally, but the numbers are very different. And 
suburban lawmakers, for example, were able to to beat back an increase in the the payroll tax in their areas as well. So, you know, uh, there also is they're going to reduce a a planned fare hike. It was supposed to be five and a half percent. They're going to be able to bring that down to four percent, according to the governor's office. And there's going to be a pilot program for free bus routes, one in each borough. And you mentioned suburban lawmakers winning on that issue, essentially ensuring that uh, an increased tax doesn't get passed on to businesses in that area. That wasn't the only win for suburban lawmakers, though, Maysoon. They also were successful in kicking a, a housing proposal out that they hated, that the governor was advancing. But the governor seems like she wants to revisit this in the legislature. What sort of hints did she offer about plans to revisit this in the final month now of the legislative session? Mm -hmm. Well, Hochul said that, um, obviously, as you said, Republican lawmakers resisted um, some changes to the housing proposal. And Democrats, mm -hmm. though. And some Democrats, um, especially with the zoning mandates and the suburbs and things like that. Um, but Hochul said that she's interested in revisiting elements of that proposal um, in the legislative session after the budget is finalized, um, but also maybe even next year um, during the next budget process. And she said she wants to focus more on New York City, whether, but she's still open to looking at the suburbs. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's one element in there about building housing around uh, transit hubs. Um, that's something that she said she'd look at. Um, but definitely there seems like there's a focus in New York City rather than the rest of New York, um, as we know now. And there's plenty of other budget news that I'm sure Dan Clark is going to get to mm -hmm. next week when he returns. I'm looking at my notes. We can talk about charter schools. Uh, uh, we can talk about no new taxes on the wealthy, uh, expansion of child tax credit, school meals. But I think we would be really doing an injustice to the viewers mm -hmm. if we didn't mention the fact that we had an A-list star at oh, the yeah. Capitol this week. <laughs> Maysoon, you had some of the best video of that. <laughs> Very quickly, who did you see at the Capitol this week? I saw Emma Stone at the Capitol uh, this week. She was there talking about a bill on um, childhood harassment. Um, so I was able to um, get her right by the Senate chamber. Um, it seemed like she wasn't too interested in getting photographed. Um, gotcha. And if you take a look at the bill, you might it might give you some insight. Um, but that's kind of, um, that was the gist of it. So well, welcome to the Capitol, Maysoon. Thank Just you. A-list stars. Well, we've been speaking with Maysoon Khan. She's a Capitol reporter for the Associated Press. Mm -hmm. We've also been joined by John Campbell, Gothamist reporter at the Capitol, as well as for WNYC Public Radio. And now we're going to take a look at public education in New York, and specifically the teacher shortage in classrooms around the Empire State, which has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Despite recent efforts to replenish the ranks of educators in the K-12 system, the problem could be getting worse before it gets better, as a result of a generation of teachers expected to retire in the near future. For more on what it will take to reverse this trend, our own Catherine Rafferty has this report on what it will take to recruit and retain teachers right here in New York. Tony Gammels, co-director of the Teacher Center of Central Westchester, noticed that teachers she worked with were stressed to the point of wanting to leave the profession. We started talking about being, being a teacher and what it's like to be a teacher. And what saddened me is that the majority say they can't wait to retire. They can't wait to do something else. And they're counting the days. Even the young teachers are saying that. Gamels believes the pandemic is a major cause of teacher stress. Our next-gen standards are still going full blast, and we have to keep those kids up. And that's such, that is such a stress, because no teacher wants to leave their child behind. We want our students to succeed. But we have to realize they've lost time, and they've also been—they've had a traumatic experience along with their teachers. Nationwide. 
there are 280,000 fewer teachers in the U.S. today than before the pandemic. That's according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. In New York, the teacher shortage was already an issue before the pandemic. Reports from the U.S. Department of Education show that enrollment in teacher education programs has declined by about 50 percent since 2009. Also, more than one-third of New York's teachers will soon be eligible for retirement. Andy Pallotta, president of New York State United Teachers, says the pandemic has just exacerbated the issue. What the pandemic brought us was questions, a lot of questions. What's the right way to go? So we had, uh, do we wear a mask? Do we not wear a mask? You know, do we have a mandate on the vaccine? Do we not have a mandate? Um, a lot of folks were very confused by information coming out of the CDC or the state health department. So I believe that this added to a lot of the stress of those educators that were in the field already and those that were looking to go into the field of teaching. The shortage is here. We have districts right here in Albany where they still have openings from September till now. And I hear from other districts around the state that they still have openings. That never used to be the case. Relationships between colleagues, also called collegial relationships, have been shown to help with teacher performance and retention in new studies from New York Kids, a group of researchers that aim to identify promising practices in odds-beating schools based at SUNY Albany's School of Education. Kristen Wilcox, director of research, and Aaron Leo, assistant director of research, led the studies. There was a lot of interest in the impacts of the pandemic on children and youth, and justifiably so, um, because they were very heavily impacted when schools went completely remote. Um, our team had some uh, interest in you know, issues around trauma and secondary traumatic stress. The study had several key findings. The levels of educator collegiality were negatively impacted by the pandemic overall. But not all educators experienced the same decrease in levels of collegiality. Educators teaching remotely experienced lower levels of collegiality than their in-person peers during the pandemic. The lack of collaboration and relationships amongst educator colleagues impacted their motivation to work and for their work to benefit the students. When teachers can work together and collaborate with each other and have that kind of collegial kind of environment, climate in the school, that really rubs off on children. It seems intuitive, but it really is a thing, um, and it really makes a difference on how kids actually behave with each other. Wilcox and Leo identified positive outliers in their studies. They found a few common themes that led some school environments to stand out in this research. The relationships between um, principals and other administrators and teachers was very important. Um, communication between um, administrators and teachers. So when, when teachers in these, these positive outlier schools that responded a little bit better on the survey but were reported less severe impacts, one of the things we found was that they felt like their, um, the school leadership communicated with them better. They kind of let them know what was going on. They solicited their input. Um, so what, you know, what, what's been identified as like distributed leadership, the idea that it's not just one person kind of calling the shots and everybody else has to follow in. Looking at all the data and saying really at the core of what we thought was a sign of resilience, you know, and something for people to be you know, taking away from the pandemic is that focus on um, just really keeping relationships strong. The school is, is really a, a safe haven 
uh, for children who are really very vulnerable, and they have more of awareness of that. And what we found in those positive outlier schools is a really um, kind of tuned in way of dealing with that. One of those outlier schools was at Shaker Road Elementary in Albany County. Bill Dollard is the principal there. In March 2020, when they made the decision, it, you know, it was a Friday the 13th, and that was our last day of in-person school for that school year. We took things in two-week chunks. I mean, that's the way we were asked to approach things. So you had a lot of noise, you know, from the national and international news about why we were going through this, but um, we, you know, we focused immediately on our kids and uh, what they needed to successfully finish, uh, you know, their school year. Using a distributed leadership model and implementing changes in technology helped when adapting to remote learning. I, I met with grade level teams, I met with departmental teams, I met with support staff, and you know, we, we just kind of checked in on each other every single day right from the jump. And we tried to share resources with each other in a way that uh, you know, wasn't overwhelming, was supportive, and uh, no one-upmanship, no like, hey, try this, it's way better than what you're doing. There, there was none of that going on. Everybody kind of kept their eyes on the prize. The school staff was also committed to supporting families, both inside and outside of the school, according to Dollard. I went from, you know, being a principal in a school and, you know, being available to everybody in the building to now I found myself in a situation where I was... Um, you know, hopping in my car every day and I'm driving around delivering Chromebooks or food or clothes or other things like that that families needed to get through it. Teachers creating a support system with each other was the most important factor in making it through that difficult year, according to Dollard. It made a huge, huge impact for uh, those people feeling like, A, we're all in this together. They're not doing it alone. We, you know, we're on the same page and we're helping each other out. Since 2020, the school has made strides in reconnecting with their students in person and getting them back on track in their learning. So now in the present, uh, I mean, the building's full. It's uh, the highest enrollment we've had in a, in a number of years. Uh, the kids, you know, we, we see some differences for the kids who went through the, uh, the shutdowns and the alternative ways of doing schooling uh, as a result of the pandemic. You know, they've had some longer transitions and some longer periods of learning the habits of mind about going to school. But overall, it's been very, very positive. But teacher stress was also not unique to the pandemic. Aaron Leo from New York Kids says there are also systemic issues that contribute to burnout and the overall teacher shortage in New York. I think teachers want to feel supported and valued, um, but also there are, you know, real, real tangible economic issues too, like teacher salary, um, job security, things like that, that are consistently raised by, when surveyed, you know, that, that's also what educators want too. Pallada from New York State United Teachers says it's also about respect or lack thereof for the profession of teaching. Number one is respect the profession. It used to be something where everyone honored the teacher. We have to bring that back. There were years when it was, it was almost like the political game to attack the schools and to say they're not doing the right thing by their students. 
Now, I think COVID has done something where people realize how difficult it is to really to be a teacher, to be able to open a young mind, to be able to make a difference in, in their lives, and how difficult it is. It is a tough job, and what we need to do is honor the profession, first off. We in New York, we have um, pretty much the best pay scales in the country. So it's not just about the pay, it's about the working conditions. But despite the challenges educators faced throughout the pandemic, those years also presented a unique opportunity to identify areas for improvement and change. Now, as we experience our first more or less normal school year since the pandemic, with students fully back in person, Tony Gamels from the Teacher Center of Central Westchester says teachers need continued support from administrators to make the recovery in learning gaps. We look at what our students can do now rather than what they can't do. And I wish that that's what ed, uh, administrators would do for teachers. Celebrate all the great things they do. We need to have a community of caring. And not just a community of caring in our own homes, but a community of caring within the whole school district, between our families, between administrators, between teachers. We need to care about each other because life is, life's going on, it's going on very fast. And for Wilcox and Leo from New York Kids, the resilience of the teachers they surveyed is a silver lining to their research. The pandemic has kind of highlighted how important those, those connections are to other people and how we just, um, how we stay motivated in our work and how we, you know, uh, develop new ideas with each other. We, we hope our study does that, you know, reveals some of the things that our lessons learned of things that we could do better, uh, better prepare our schools for the next crisis. Uh, there's likely to be one at some point, um, but also to celebrate, you know, where we've been resilient and we've come up with some really great ways of dealing with really complicated problems. And that's all the time we have this week. But remember, you can stay up to date on all our Capitol coverage, including blog posts and past episodes at nynow.org. From all of us at WMHT, thanks for watching. And I promise Dan Clark will be back with you next week. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.